Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast about our political institutions, how they're failing us, and ideas for fixing them. My name is James Walner. I'm a senior fellow at the R Street Institute and a lecturer in the Department of Political Science at Clemson University. And I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. Happy New Year, Lee. Welcome. It's good to see you. It's good to see you too. And welcome to all of our listeners. Thank you for coming back. Good to be talking to all of you. If only I could hear you as well. You, you might be screaming in anticipation of what is certainly going to be an anxiety-producing and gut-wrenching year. Well, that doesn't sound very optimistically. But but we're here, to, we're, we're, we're here to help you all through it. So, yeah. uh, well, there you go. But no, and we do need to work, figure out how we can get some call-in action going. I don't know how you do that on a podcast, but... I think it would be great to just, you know, first time caller, long time listener. Thank God for politics in question. You email us. Yeah, we should definitely do that. We'll, we'll come back and we'll return to this in a future episode. But today I want to talk about a new report that you have out with some of your colleagues about Americans and how they view democracy. And I guess my question is, and Lee, you like music, right? You're a music guy. You remember uh, there was a movie in the 80s about a kid who moves to a town and they outlaw dancing. He can't. There's no dancing. And what does he do? He he joins with his other friends and they get a dance going. Right. This is Footloose, obviously. Footloose. Yes. And do you remember Bonnie Tyler's uh, hit song from Footloose, Holding Out for a Hero? They were just Hold that, for- yeah, I do remember that, although that... Uh- that was not my favorite track. I really like the title track. Uh, the title, you know, that's also good. But, you know, holding out for a hero, this town, they're just waiting for a hero to come and save them from the dull existence of life without dances. But we also have another excellent movie from the 80s, and we have Mad Max, right, in Thunderdome. I, I and thought you were going to say t- Dirty Dancing. <laughs> we're getting there, too. I'm going to work that <laughs> in. But Tina Turner then says, we don't need another hero, right? That's a, it's a fabulous song as well. And the question I have is, which one is it, Lee? Do we need a hero? Do we not need a hero? Last time I checked, Americans kind of did things for ourselves. We were believed in self-government. We believed in democratic self-government. We don't believe in kind of like strong leaders to come in and save the day. So do Americans side with Bonnie Tyler on this or are they siding with Tina Turner? Well, the fact that both movies were hits suggests that maybe there's a kind of ambivalence in how we feel about leaders. We sort of are always looking for a leader. There's this idea that we want somebody who will be like, you know, our, our hero, right? Our, our Eisenhower, our, our FDR, our George Washington. We look to great leaders to inspire us, but we also rebel against leaders who tell us what to do. So this is the frisson of democracy, which is that we need leadership, but we rebel against too much of it. So I think we made that work. I think that transition worked pretty well. But it's, I think it's very true and it gets at something really important, which I've kind of hit on time and time again on the podcast. But before we get into all of the theory and the abstract stuff and our listeners just lose their minds and they're just, you know, go away. Let's talk about this report. Like, how do you know what you just said? Like, what, what are you basing it on? Is it just that, you know, somebody told you at the Metro stop this morning or, or what? James, I, I do my own research, okay? You're a data guy, right? Yeah, yeah. So let me tell you all about this new report. It's called Democracy Hypocrisy. Uh, it's a mouthful. 
but a memorable mouthful, I hope, Democracy Hypocrisy, Examining America's Fragile Democratic Convictions. It's uh, a report that I wrote with my New America colleague, Oscar Pocasangre, and with Joe Goldman, who's the president of the Democracy Fund. And, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. Oh, yes, everybody. please do. And you know, those who, who can't wait to check the show notes, you can Google it. So uh, the basic idea here is that we've been doing this panel study since 2017, and we've been asking the same people, the same questions about various democratic norms, about how they feel about democracy, about how they feel about media oversight, how they feel about congressional oversight, how they feel about the president taking action when the Constitution is unclear and just doing it because the president knows it's the right thing to do or a majority of people want. And the finding from tracking the same people over many years is that uh, and the title gives it away, is that a, a, a lot of us are hypocrites in the sense that we say democracy is really important to us. We really think that we want to live in a democracy. We don't want a strong man. But yet, when uh, people are asked about these basic aspects of liberal democracy, their answer sometimes depends uh, well, is it is it my guy in the White House? Well, then maybe it's okay if the president takes extraordinary actions. Is it my guy in the White House? Well, maybe the media shouldn't be too critical of the president, or maybe Congress shouldn't be too critical of the president. But if it's not my guy in the White House, well, yeah, I mean, Congress should have tremendous oversight, and no way the president shouldn't take action. So the key takeaway here is that our commitments to democracy are a little bit more abstract and thin than I think a lot of us would be willing to admit, and that our democracy as a result is on a little spongier ground than I and perhaps others uh, should feel comfortable with. Well, a note of optimism for everyone here at the outset is that I think spongy ground, or at least you know, if you think about good soil and, and soil in which plants grow very well and things can sprout up, I mean, versus some hard rock. So, we, you know, spongy might not be all that bad. But of course, I'm not saying that authoritarianism is good. Depends how spongy. Right. I'm just always looking for the uh, the good. Uh, but there, there's always that that two sides to to all of these things, right? Two sides of the same coin. But the top points here, just that Americans like democracy, but fewer Americans like democracy when it gets in their way. Americans don't like being authoritarians, but maybe they lean a little authoritarian when democracy gets in their way. Right, right. It's uh, you know, democracy seems inconvenient when uh, certain values are on the line. So, what do we mean by democracy? Like, what what is democracy? And I know this is for scholars, for people who are involved in the public policy space. This is a very tedious question, but. But it's an important one, right? I mean, I think when you ask people, do you like democracy? I think it's important to have an idea of what you think and also what they think democracy is. So let's start with what you think or the report thinks. Well, I do want to acknowledge that I think democracy is a word that has different meanings for different people. 
we we had a an episode that we'll link to in the show notes in which we had Nick Davis talk about his book Democracy's Meanings and found that democracy does mean different things to different people. For some people, it's more of a procedural uh, system. Others, it's more about equality and outcomes. And I'll give you my personal view of what I think democracy is, and then I'll talk about a little bit how we think about it in the report. So my personal view of democracy is that it is both an ethos and a system. It's an ethos in that it's a way of thinking about self-government that recognizes that all of us are in a shared community and we all have equal weight and equal power and deserve equal respect as a result of that. And as a set of institutions, it's uh, elections and government in which all people have equal weight and equal power. And even more broadly, as a system of government, it's a way of negotiating our differences and our disagreements without resorting to violence. Now, that's all sort of abstract and philosophical and I know I know you you love all that abstract and philosophical stuff as much as I do but to ask people questions about that you need to operationalize this a little bit and generally the way that we maintain these sort of highfalutin values is through certain rules that ensure that those who are in power don't abuse their power and those who are not in power don't resort to violence. And a lot of the questions that we ask about in this report are you know, really questions of liberal democracy, of checks and balances within institutions that balance out power and avoid the tyranny of too much concentrated power, uh, about the you know, limits on executive overreach. And you know, p- part of what we were thinking when we ask these questions is we looked at countries that have experienced democratic backsliding and the you know general story of countries that experience democratic backsliding is that there's tremendous executive overreach and there is a collapse of these sort of aspects of liberal democracy of a free press of the ability of the opposition to hold the side in power accountable. And so we ask questions that are somewhat related to ways in which other democracies have backslid into authoritarianism. And again, the top line is that there's an inconsistency here. And this is pretty consistent with a growing number of studies that have shown that in uh, surveys, and in some experimental manipulations, people's abstract support for democracy in this sort of ethereal, good for everyone sense, this idea that democracy is the thing that we're supposed to support kind of fades away. And there's just a simple partisan calculus, which is that my side is right, my side is the defender of democracy, and the other side is a threat. This happens in highly polarized societies much more often, which is why high partisan polarization tends to correspond to democratic backsliding. So that's that's a long answer, which is very on brand for us. Yeah, or no, not an answer. You did not answer my question. Did you go to www.jameswalnerlies.com? 
Is that a website? You know, uh, no, over and over. That's all but, I've heard. But I but hope not so. from yeah. about me, but about DeSantis. So two questions I want to ask to elaborate on, and then I want to get into the nuts and bolts of the report. But the first is, is this new? Right. I mean, in a sense, we're asking if people like, do you like the separation of powers? And like, you know, do um, did they like it? And like, did, has it ever been? Now, you do document a trend, which is interesting. And I want to get into that. And that's one of the reasons why I'm asking the question. But it, broadly speaking, has there been a period in time when Americans just liked, liked our institutions and they preferred our institutions and democratic self-government, even when it conflicted with their outcomes? Or was it that their outcomes in those institutions were kind of aligned with one another? And then I guess kind of related to that, we think about democracy and you said liberal democracy. And this is a point that the pollster, the head pollster in Iowa, the Des Moines Register pollster made the other day on a podcast I was listening to about how constantly referring to democracy as liberal democracy, are we at risk? I know what you mean. But for your just you know regular person who doesn't sit around and think about political theory all day long and classical liberalism, is there a risk of associating, correctly or incorrectly, just the word with a political party? Does that does that make sense? Because this was an, it was a curious observation. I hadn't thought about it. Like so there's no liberal. I mean, it's not. Well, I mean, I guess democracy. That the the Democratic Party used to be called the democracy. But if I call you and you're sitting at home and you've got your "Make America Great Again" hat on and you have a sign outside that says Biden should be in jail, and I ask you a question, and that question is, do you support liberal democracy? Are you going to think about Adam Smith, or are you going to think about liberal Democrats? I'm, like, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure this person is an avid reader of John Locke. Right? Am I? Am I right? Uh, no, you're you're right. I mean, I mean, that's it's not something that most people think about. The term liberal democracy is not something that has much meaning to that many people who who don't think and read about it in the way that that we do. And you're right. This has been a constant finding in public opinion research going back to the 1950s and 1960s when scholars first started asking these questions. Do you like democracy in the abstract? Yeah, it's great. Uh, how about the ability of somebody who you disagree with to protest? Yeah, maybe maybe not so much about that. Uh, right. So th there's always been this tension in uh, the way our democracy works, that there is, frankly, a set of leaders and, and a, an elite class of politicians and folks in the media who have understood the importance of the liberal aspect of democracy. And by that, I mean the classical liberal, you know, Bill of Rights, freedom of speech, freedom of association, all, all of that, uh, checks and balances, and have recognized the importance of holding that up, even though sometimes it's not popular, because it's just a sort of some ways, it's a non-intuitive concept for a lot of people because they think, well, of course I'm right, and of course I should get my way. Uh, and it often comes, I think, from associating the idea that the majority should always get its way, right? Like a, this kind of simple majoritarianism, which I think is somewhat of a problematic way of viewing democracy. But so we've always depended on political leaders to 
kind of act as the teachers of the importance of this liberal, classical liberal restraint, and to sometimes act as a buffer against demands to, to undermine it. And I think what's distinct in this particular political moment, which is why it's so dangerous, is that we have a growing number of political leaders, and I would put Donald Trump here as the, the, the worst offender, who who show no understanding of uh, the importance of this and are, in fact, hostile to this, right? Well, let's take Trump and his supporters, and because the report mentions and refers to, it looks at this through a presidential lens uh, in many respects, which is interesting, and, it, and I'm going to get to that in a minute, but this pollster... When I, if I remember correctly, she was saying that Trump, and this I think aligns with the data I've seen, the polls that I've read, that if you look at Trump supporters, he declines overall, or Republicans, I should say, his support declines when he starts talking about like tearing up the Constitution. Maybe not as much as other people would want, but it does go down, which I think affirms and aligns with the findings in your report in many respects. Right. That, that that's That's the key point. Yeah. Is that we don't like democracy when it gets in our way. We don't like authoritarianism when it's very explicit. Right. But if there's some way that we can some and I'm not saying Trump's an authoritarian, I don't think he's an authoritarian. But when we have a situation where we can be a little ambiguous about it and we can think that we're doing what's needed to prevail to preserve everything in our way of life, et cetera, then we can rationalize to ourselves. I think we don't want clarity here. We want ambiguity and Ambiguous environments. Well, sure, but it's also ambiguity that lets authoritarians get away with things, right? It's not right. It, nobody votes in an authoritarian thinking they're voting in an authoritarian, or at least that hasn't happened in a very long time. But in the modern era of democracies, you have leaders who say, "Well." We need to do this as an emergency act, just this once, because this party or this group is a threat to the stability of our democracy. And just this extraordinary thing, and it's because the other side is threatening the fundamental values of our democracy. And over time, you know, one emergency action becomes another emergency action, and suddenly there's no checks and balances, there's no free press. There's no meaningful elections, and it's not that voters voted for that explicitly. Often, they just voted for change. I mean, you look at the rise of, of or Orban in Hungary, and Orban did not start out as an authoritarian. He started out as a normal politician who was just promising change, and over time, he gradually gave voters a different kind of change. And that's the key though, right? I mean, underlying all of this is what preserves our system. What, you know, you mentioned checks and balances and in the report, it the kind of the subtext suggests that it's a s democratic rules, virtues and norms, right? That that is something that preserves our system. The way I look at how, and because I don't think this is different, right? I mean, if you look at Julius Caesar, he was an emergency dictator in Rome and then he ended up subverting the Roman constitution and starting a period of authoritarian rule. So, I, I mean, this goes back to antiquity, this kind of tendency to kind of rationalize and look the other way. What makes, I think, America different than Rome is I see it, in addition to running water and like, like electricity and things like that, and Bonnie Tyler and Tina Turner, is that we have a new way of preserving our system. 
because ultimately we don't have anyone who is in charge here. If you have a set of rules, then that implies that there's a person or persons or people who can define what those rules are and then impose those rules on the polity and then enforce those rules on the polity. Our system is set up to be self-sustaining and perpetual without a ruler, precisely because no one can kind of conquer it, I guess. And so is it, it's not necessarily rule. Rule by laws, not by men, right? Right. Well, it's that you want to win and then somebody else wants to win and you're in the House there in the Senate and you got to fight. And, you know, it's just it's too hard. This is what Madison tells us in Federalist 10. It's, it's too much diversity, too many places for a consistent majority to form that is coherent and agrees on substantive issues over a sustained period of time. Like, right. it's just and, it doesn't and, work. And, and he was right. This is a hypothesis that has been proven to be correct time and time again by social scientists who look at the stability of democracy and they say, if you want to have a stable democracy, majorities need to be constantly changing. There need to be these cross-cutting allegiances in which a lot of people are not sure which well, side let's to be Trump. on. Yeah, I mean, so let's use, let's just, I'm going to use Trump and being an authoritarian as an example here. If you have Trump supporters, and the report makes this case as well, and Trump is an authoritarian and people are supporting Trump, it assumes that they all agree, that they're all capable of concerted action, that they all are going to be supportive of a leader who does explicit things over in several areas, right? I think that, you know, if you look at other authoritarians in the past, they've ultimately, you know, they are able to make their persona like the the kind of identity of the nation and what, you know, and you begin to get in this weird world where you're kind of like totalitarian and up is down and down is up and everything is in between. But the data suggests that number one, Americans are divided on issues and maybe, and yes, we don't like democracy when it gets in our way, potentially. We don't like authoritarians when it gets in our way, potentially. And so if, if Trump supporters, are they monolithic? I guess I'm not I mean, saying- I mean, no, they're, they're, not, they're not monolithic, but- So is there a risk there? Is there a threat or Biden supporters or anybody? I mean, what's the rip? What's the danger? If there is no majority capable of tyrannizing the minority? Well, the, the danger is that a person, say Trump, comes into power and changes the rules to make it harder- for the opposition to compete on a level playing field by, you know, threatening opposition, by shutting down media, putting people in jail, changing election rules. I mean, this is the authoritarian playbook and that there is not enough pushback from the electorate because either people think, oh, this is okay because my side is doing it, or this is okay because the true threat is the other side. Democrats are trying to steal elections. Democrats are trying to undermine our democracy. Therefore, we're okay with this, right? So that is the fundamental question is how do you how do you hold somebody accountable when they make these transgressions that uh, you're right, if most people view them as transgressions, they would reject them. But when we're in this zero-sum partisan warfare, it's really hard for people to accept that their side might be doing something wrong. And even so, well, the other side is even worse, right? It's trying to create this moral equivalency. Well, you know, maybe maybe we, we're doing some extraordinary things, but but the times merit it, right? Well, there's a dis there's a disconnect though, right? I mean, there's a one, we're safe because, you know, there is a, a residual kind of 
like love of like democratic institutions and the report documents this well i think on the other hand we're safe because we can't all agree on the same outcome a la madison and so therefore you know it's going to be okay but we have this sense of like we can't like no one's going to stop trump from doing things well if you if he does let's you have to make it concrete and particular if you look at immigration for instance uh, you know, he was stopped by a, a district court judge in Hawaii with a nationwide injunction on his uh, Muslim ban policy, right? And so, I mean, he seems to be a very weak authoritarian. Right. He he may be. And, you know, it, it may be. And is that because he doesn't really want to do it? Or is it because the people are kind of like whatever? Or is it we're all just playing a game? I guess. But, but who's the, I mean, who's the we here, right? We. Like, oh, but but we, who's the who's the we? We've been waiting for. Okay, we are the we. But who's the we? Right. So we say. Okay, no, I mean, you know, I mean, I mean, democracy. Ultimately, we can say that you know we don't have rulers, but we have power, and power is concentrated in a limited number of people who have the authority to run the government. Now, maybe they can only do so much because they also need other actors in the government to go along with them, right? I mean, the president, you know, it's the, the, the famous line about Truman talking about what will be like for Eisenhower to be president saying, uh, poor, poor Ike, he'll say, do this, do that, and nothing will happen. But why don't, so that's the key. I mean, as I see our system, what makes it tick, what keeps it going is the fact that you can't win. It's too hard to get control of the House and the Senate and the presidency and the Supreme Court and the states and the media, all these different, it's too much. And to do that and maintain that control over a sustained period of time with a coalition that does not fundamentally agree on policy specifics, it's 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 too much. It's right, too right. Much. And, the, and the tragedy of our system is that despite that, everything is about building the permanent majority, right? Right, which is laughable. Right, but but so much energy goes into that, and and so much fear mongering goes into the idea that the other side is going to build the permanent majority, and it drives us all crazy, and it forces politicians and voters to try to, or it leads them to to hold out for the hope that you know that will happen, and therefore we should just hold our fire for the moment in which we have total control and can impose our agenda. And then they say, well, the other side's going to do that. So we should do that. It's the fundamental tragedy of our politics. To me, it's, it's a, it's a consequence of a binary electoral system in which you have two sides, both who feel like they're really close to getting that permanent majority. And if they can right, just so fight a little harder, then they're going to get it. It's all going to be gravy. It's going to be great. Everybody's it's going to be the promised land. But your, the report highlights, uh, I think, something very important. It underscores something that I think is extraordinarily important. Because we have to first ask ourselves, what preserves our system? And I think it is that kind of check and balance, that push and pull, that conflict, if you will, that disagreement between uh, diverse people and their representatives that prevents anyone from ruling. But then you have to say, okay, well, then why aren't people trying? And you've written, you've done a lot of work on this, and, I, and it really gets to the, the point, which is that they're not, they're not trying because they think that by doing something, they're going to not do, they're going to make it harder, right? So they think if, if they really fight now, that's going to endanger their chances in an election to get a permanent majority to then rule or whatever it is they want to do. 
I guess what I'm saying is that they think about conflict differently. They think about politics differently. I think we all do. And you see this on the left and the right, which is very intriguing to me. On one hand, I want to say this is all nothing new here. But on the other hand, I think this is significant. And the shift that you document in the report, I think, highlights the shift in thinking. And I've kind of gotten at this in the past before. But what do you what do you think? Am I am I losing my let, mind? Let me know when you world? find your mind, James. No, um, it's it's uh, somewhere. I left it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, by my keys. Yeah, right. But we look in the mirror, and the problem is us. I mean, you have an excellent Substack piece summarizing the report, and you kind of start off like this, and it's it's so true. It's not the other guy; it's all of us. Right. I in the report, I say like maybe I'm a democracy hypocrite uh, because I I sort of feel that. Uh, the Republicans are a threat to democracy. and But the, the conclusion can't be that Democrats have to win every election, right? Because like, like, then I, I often think, well, do, do we even have a democracy if we think that only one party can win elections? And the answer would be no, because a democracy is a system in which parties can lose elections. But I think you said something really important there about how so many of us don't try because we are holding out for this promised land in which one side will have uh, the majority. And I think that is something uh, new and distinct about this period of politics. I think there was a, a long period in which every election was not this all or nothing election because the, you know, there was sort of a broad overlapping consensus that cut across the parties uh, so it didn't matter that much which side won any given election. You know, the, the policy result was going to be some sort of like broad conclusion of, of what the overlapping coalitions were. And that has changed as our politics has flattened and nationalized and bifurcated. There is a, a strong sense that if if we don't win this next election, Everything is going to be over. I would submit to you, it's not just nationalized politics, though, right? It's not not it, just, but it is an important part of it. It's that we aren't, when you see politics as a place where you go to participate in an activity, to try to win, as crass as that may be, I mean, it doesn't mean noble, but like you're just trying to win and other people are trying to win and you're not going to agree because we agree that there's a diversity in America that is pretty extraordinary. And so if you have a lot of different people who have different views coming together to try to win the outcome is going to be compromised in some form, right? It may not be good, but it's going to be compromised. And I guess the issue is today, we we don't want to win. We want to rule. We want That's why we go to the Supreme Court. That's why we look to the administration. We want one final decision. We don't want to tolerate people that we disagree with, which is to your point. So, so that's the, the question about temporality, which is that what you're describing as wanting to win is wanting to win now as opposed to wanting to win forever. so And there may not be a tomorrow if, if some people's mind. I mean, if you think the world is going extinct, if you think the planet's going to die, then having to engage in a political process where you have someone who disagrees with you and says, no, I want to fight back and, and, and argue about that, that is not a good thing. Or if you think a terrorist is behind every rock and behind every bush, then right. you're like, no, our security's at risk. We, this is right, too important right, for right, politics. Right. Fear, fear is a powerful emotion. That's why the dictator's playbook is to make people constantly afraid of phony enemies. So, but politics is 
So in a sense, I guess it's understandable that this tendency, this ambivalence is probably a better word towards democratic institutions that your report reveals is there. I mean, that makes, I think, a lot of sense. But it's also, I think it does illustrate the shift in our thinking because we don't, we don't want to do politics anymore. We want to do, we want to do production. We want to have a factory where we can control it. And maybe we do it by an election. And then there's a certainty there. There's a certainty well, that, that, in the that Supreme is the, the point that that we're 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 searching for certainty in an uncertain world, right? And we and don't. I, I, but that's kind of. Like I mean, it, but it's it's yeah. I mean, so so that that's the yeah. Re, re, remains the first remains the, 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 the cri de corps, the cri de corps. Oh, my French is terrible. Uh, of of our podcast, which is you know, we have to make space for uncertainty. We have to make it okay to be unsure and to change your mind and to, to think through things. And you know, certainty is the enemy of democracy. And in many respects, when you have a production process that wants certainty, there isn't, it's not that they're like a hypocrite. It's almost like hypocrites don't matter anymore. Right. I mean, I don't think they're being hypocrites. I think it's not good. But if you look at, say, like uh, the same, you can see the same tendency with regard to the Senate rules in Democrats and Republicans. It's outcome focused thinking. It's saying, I want this thing and these rules are getting in my way. So you rationalize departures whenever they get in your way. And uncertain how things will end. So, so folks, if, if you've listened to the end of this podcast and we should wrap it up and you want to go on the social medias and share this podcast, a, a great line to share is, Certainty is the enemy of democracy. I like. I'm just going to go ahead and say I like it. I don't. I've got to really think through it. But because if you have certainty, that means that you have someone who can decide for everybody. That's not the way it works in America. But no, this is an excellent. Are you sure? Well, I I don't know anything. I don't know. I just got to kind of think out loud, which is probably a pretty scary experience if you think about it. Oh, somebody, somebody might tell you you're wrong, and then your whole sense of well-being might might uh, crumble. But, and this does get back to, and I know we need to wrap up, but like you and I, we disagree on a lot. I'm, I, we probably agree on a lot too. But I think but, we agree that we disagree. Yeah. We, but like being able to argue and debate and talk with you, and to know that like I that you were there, if I can. I'm, I want to know what you think, even when I know you're going to disagree with me. I think more Americans would get that out of politics in general, both you know in their communities and at the national level, if we kind of kind of check this aspiration to rule. Right? That doesn't mean we can't be passionate. We don't have. Of course, you can be passionate. Martin Luther King was passionate, but he wasn't trying to rule. He was trying to persuade. Right. And the idea, I mean, so much of it is how do we fix American democracy as opposed to how do we give American democracy space to to work? So this is going to be the architectonic year where we talk about space and phenomenology and all kinds of things that our listeners have just been pining for. I know it. Temporality, um, temporality. It's so important. It's so important. But I'm not going, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. I just want to you to tell us and to tell our listeners, what do we do? What are the reforms? How do we help? We, we got to break the two-party doom loop. That's was, that's was, how we do it. We've yeah. we've got to stop this political system in which everybody is angling to get this permanent fifty-one percent majority that is fundamentally downstream of this idea that that we have only two sides and only one side can triumph. Uh, we've got to bring make politics multi-dimensional, multi-party, 
and stop thinking that democracy is a thing to be fixed or to be certain of. It's a space, it's not, right? It's, it's no, a space. It's, it's a space. We're not space building and, like an iPhone here. We're not operating space, on an individual. Space and like, time. Is, it's, it's all metaphysics. It's, uh, and it's an stay, activity. Stay tuned. But uh, yeah, I think that's that's true. We need, but also Americans have to understand that conflict's okay. Disagreement's shut, okay. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, right? I, I, I don't know about that. <laughs> I'm but unsure. Dis, out of disagreement comes. I, I, I uh, right? Uh, uh, yeah, uh, I don't know. I'm sure. Uh, I'm certain uh, of that. But uh, uh, don't be so sure. Um, that, I think this is. It's a great report. It is. It is. A, it is a very interesting read. Uh, whether you are predisposed to agree or disagree with it, I highly recommend it. Um, and uh, we'll put it up in the show notes. And I'm looking forward to a good yearly as we close out here on this first episode of what season six now, I guess. Yeah, we've, um, been, doing it. we've been doing it a long time. Who's uh, going to win Iowa? Uh, me. You. Okay. I don't know. All yeah, of us. Yeah. None of us. You can't, but the, I want you to predict Michigan. The- Michigan. We can't predict the future. Is that a bowl game? I don't know. I don't know. Well, anyway, I think that's a, probably a signal that we should uh, we should probably uh, call it now. But uh, thank you all for listening. This has been another episode in Politics in Question. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. This podcast is a joint production between New America and the R Street Institute. Our producer is Sarah Jacob. Our audio engineer is Shannon Lynch. Theme music composed and performed by yours truly. Please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.